Would you turn in your Bibles to Haggai chapter 1? Not a very well-known book of the Bible. Um, if you don't have a Bible, please grab one of the blue Bibles under the chairs in front of you, and you can find Haggai on page 769. If you have your own, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi are the last three books of the Old Testament, and um, maybe that'll help you. Today we're in the second week of our 2016 vision campaign called Growing in Grace, Faithful Stewardship. Last week we talked about gospel foundations that fuel our vision and mission. Um, And uh, they started with this, biblical community, we said, is only possible as followers of Christ draw from a vertical relationship of faith with God through His Son, Jesus. And that vertical relationship naturally overflows to horizontal relationships. And one aspect at the core of biblical community is authenticity, admitting the reality of who we are, not hiding it. That leads to a focus on gospel grace because we know we're broken and in need of gospel healing. We're sin-sick, but the antidote, the perfect antidote, has been provided by the Father in the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus. And that life change should shape our hearts into the likeness of the Savior's heart who demonstrated compassion for the least and the lost the least being the most vulnerable, the lost being all who need to hear about this new life in Jesus Christ. And then the calling of the church that's summarized in Jesus' last words to His disciples, the Great Commission, is to make disciples who reflect biblical community, who focus on gospel grace and minister to the least and the lost. There's a cycle that Jesus intends to keep going until He comes back again at the end of history. Those are gospel foundations. This morning, we're going to begin to focus on what we believe God is calling us to build on top of those gospel foundations, not just a facility at 21 Harristown Road, but a community, a family that reflects more and more consistently these gospel foundations and everything that we say and everything that we do. Uh, A little bit of brief background on our passage before we jump in, especially because it, it tends to be an unfamiliar section of the Bible. The nation of Israel had suffered waves of attacks for the previous 200 years. First, the Assyrian army attacking the north, and then the Babylonian army attacking the south, destroying the city of Jerusalem, and collectively carting off into exile tens of thousands of the people of Israel. A new king arises uh, in the Persian kingdom, and after about 70 years of captivity, he graciously allows Uh, as many Israelites who want to go back to their homeland to return. And they do so. And now in about 520 B.C., after they've been home for about 20 years, God sends this rebuking word to them through the prophet Haggai. Listen carefully. These are God's words. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. 
You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces on people and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, enable us by that same spirit at work in your people then and today to hear the voice of the Lord our God the Almighty, speaking through your prophet Haggai. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Keep the Bible open because I want to refer back to Haggai chapter 1 throughout our time this morning. First thing we'll look at is futility and frustration. The book of Haggai is an interesting one, only two chapters long and with a focused theme of a building project the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem that was still in ruins. God's first words quote his people's excuses, verse 2. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. And it's not because they're barely hanging on, trying to survive, trying to make ends meet. The very next thing the Lord says is in verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now, we don't know what a paneled house would have been back then, or certainly not what would be the equivalent of a paneled house today, but all we can say with pretty good certainty is it wasn't no shack that these people were living in. They were comfortable, and the contrast is what God is using to rebuke them. You're living it up, and your excuses are all about wrong priorities, not insufficient finances. The text doesn't give us these details, but it wouldn't be surprising if the people were thinking along these lines, God, I need to secure my future first. And if they had children, I need to invest in my kids' future to set them up for success, the implication being that if I don't, they'll be set up for failure. They'll flounder in life. And and isn't that so natural to think that securing our future is up to us 
Of course, the Bible doesn't throw out personal responsibility to plan, to save, to, to think about the future. But um, the degree to which we rely on self makes all the difference in the world. Four times in the book of Haggai, twice in our passage already, God challenges His people with these words, give careful thought to your ways. Think about the way you're living. And then He describes, maybe the, the focus, uh, the heart of chapter 1, then He describes in verse 6 the pattern of life in this fallen world. He says, you have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. For all of your effort at accomplishment, at making progress, at climbing the ladder, there is so much futility and frustration, God is saying. And when you put God second, that's what happens. Futility and frustration. You strive but never arrive. You work harder but can't get ahead. You invest but the returns are so disappointing. You chase satisfaction but more is never enough. These happen not because that's just the way life works. God isn't pointing to some impersonal law of nature that He can't help but uh, follow. That happens, this pattern follows throughout our lives because God Himself causes this. Look at verse 9. He says, You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, what happened? I, God says, blew away. It's almost as if we get this picture of, you know, the dining room table and a birthday candle that you're trying to light, and God is sitting there blowing it out before you can sing happy birthday. Why this intervention? Why why what we might be tempted to think is sort of divine sabotage? Why would God actively blow away productivity and accomplishment and fruitfulness and success Keep going into verse 10. He says, because of my house, which remains a ruin. And then verse 10, because of you, the heavens have withheld their due. There's been a drought, which for a farm-based society means overall futility and frustration, regardless of how much work you put into securing your future. If the heavens don't open... If the rain doesn't come, it doesn't matter how well you've tilled that soil, how well you've pulled out weeds, futility, and frustration. You know, we're, we're tempted to imagine that picture of a big brother teasing a little brother, holding the lollipop up out of reach, saying words like, I know you desperately want this lollipop, but you, oh, just, just reach a little harder. Tiptoe, you know, on your tiptoes a little higher, cackling with this torturous delight. But what God's doing is the exact opposite. He's not teasing. He's not playing with us. To borrow a phrase from C.S. Lewis, God is saying to His people, you are far too easily pleased. That's in the weight of glory if you want the full context of that. Your desires are not too strong. They're too weak. They're misplaced. Your hopes and dreams are not too small. They are um, 
they're too, uh, your hopes and dreams are too small. They are too short-sighted. You have Snapchat dreams, poof. Whatever you're longing for is there and then it's gone. But God refuses out of His perfect love to let you think you'll be satisfied with anything less than full, most valuable, eternity-lasting gospel treasure and gospel pleasure. He won't let you settle for anything less, which is all found in a relationship of faith in Jesus. And so God will freely and lovingly take away what you think is greatest treasure. Mean? No, if you see that he wants you to have something richer. And parents, I think there's a, maybe a, a, a mini side trail. We don't have too much time to get into it, but I think there's a bit of rich application here. Um, and I share this because increasingly from my shepherding vantage point, I see this as a- epidemic. And I'm increasingly burdened that um, passive parenting allows the, the soil of your kid's heart to grow weeds rather than spirit fruitfulness. And that leads to shallow faith, if not eventually spiritual wandering. The two go hand in hand. And if you're not a parent, there's a role that you can play in this. But parents in general, borrowing that phrase from C.S. Lewis, you're far too easily pleased when the whining finally stops because you appeased your child or he climbs in bed long after you told him to, or she grudgingly eats her dinner or obeys your instruction after a long battle. You're far too easily pleased. And you're far too easily pleased on behalf of your child, thinking that there's nothing wrong with a demand for a new toy or one more show or staying up one more hour. You're far too easily pleased. And here's a principle uh, I'd ask you to chew on. The more you give in to your kids the more discontent they become because they get used to getting what they want, which as adults we know is not reality. And if you're used to getting what you want, when you don't, you grow discontent. Their discontent, in other words, which shows up in whining and complaining, is, uh, has as its source your failure to say no. Whining is not a stage that kids go through. This is not a developmental, you know, the psychological development of children. Whining is not one of those stages, you know, after separation from the mother. Whining is a manipulative attitude that too often accomplishes its intended goal because parents give in, they tolerate it, they appease it rather than correct it. When children are not used to getting what they want, they learn to grow content with what you graciously provide to them. And that has all kinds of vertical application and implication with one's spiritual relationship of faith with God. Prosperity and lack of discipline breeds discontent. And whether it's in us adults or in our kids, our Heavenly Father, our perfect parent, loves us too much to leave us in that condition. And by the way, I, I wish we could spend some time developing this, but if, if you are wondering why I would say that prosperity and lack of discipline breeds discontent, I, all I'd say is go on a, 
an international missions trip to a developing country and play with the kids, and you will see a picture of contentment among kids who are not used to getting what they want. They don't whine about what's on the dinner table or what time they have to go to bed. They're delighted in your mere presence, in investing time and attention and love with them. God, as the perfect parent, loves us too much to leave us settling for too little, to leave us far too easily pleased. He will take away what you believe wrongly, will bring you greatest happiness. And he will frustrate your best efforts and put obstacles in the way if that's what's required to get your attention. He will say, as the perfect parent, no, you may not have that because I have something better for you. I love you too much to be far too easily pleased. And he shows us the way through his word and by his spirit, secondly. Uh, I had a conversation with a man in our church just this past week and he, destri- he described a turning point in his life. And, and when we hear that kind of phrase, our ears perk up for the same reasons people buy books titled Five Secrets to a Happier Life or Three Tips for a Fitter Body. Uh, you want the key, the secret. In other words, we want a shortcut. We want to know, well, what worked for him? And maybe that'll work for me. I need a turning point. But he simply said to me, Things along these lines. I've depended on myself all my life. I finally understand that that doesn't work. I need to completely depend on God and trust Him fully. That was the turning point. It's not very sexy when you think of life transformation. It won't sell a book. But it's no different in Haggai chapter 1. And when that happens, as I said to him in my office, it is always the work of the Holy Spirit. It's always the fruit of the Spirit's work in your heart. Verse 12 describes the turning point. The people respond, starting with the leaders. Zerubbabel, by the way, is a descendant of King David, and he becomes an ancestor of Jesus the Messiah. He shows up in the genealogy of the Savior in Matthew chapter 1, and he here is the governor of Judah. He and the other leaders, verse 12, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, And later in verse 12, the people feared the Lord. The first step of response was an attitude change. Fear of the Lord is not being frightened, not at all. Fear of the Lord is a holy reverence. It's it's a, a realization that He alone is worthy to be trusted, that He alone is the one to be exalted, and there is no other. And then verses 13 and 14 describe two things, a fresh message from God. He simply says, when I say simply, it's more than sufficient. He says, I am with you. One of the greatest promises in all the Bible. God saying to sinful people, I am with you. That's the fresh message. And then there's an initiative from God. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of the people, and they came result, and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. What was the turning point? Nothing spectacular from a human standpoint, but exactly the way God always works. 
when change, life change, spiritual transformation occurs. The Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit bringing about an attitude change and spurring on obedient and sacrificial action. That's what God does. That's, that's how He operates. That's how He grows us into the image of the Savior. And in the next book of the Bible, God will say to this same Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord Almighty. I will do this thing. Not through your genius, not because you're especially godly or you're really good at following laws, but because I will give you my grace, I will be with you. Lastly, GRC's, quote, temple building. What does this have to do with our vision campaign? First, let me say this. Yes, God's word through the prophet Haggai is absolutely focused on rebuilding sacred space, on providing a location for worship. But, biblically speaking, when Jesus comes, when he declares himself to be the new temple in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. He wasn't talking about the building that had taken 46 years to build. He was talking about his body. And when the last chapter of the Bible says that in the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city that comes down, will not have a temple, which you have to realize was the defining characteristic of the ancient city of Jerusalem. It wasn't the city of David without a temple. Of course, it came after David, but that was what characterized it. That was what gave it glory among the nations, and the new Jerusalem will not have a temple. Why? Because Jesus is the temple, Revelation 22 tells us. The temple had represented God's presence among His people. It was where He met with His people, spoke to them, accepted sacrifice, but now God in the flesh has come to be with His people and promises ultimately to dwell with them face to face for eternity. And so no one should use Haggai as a biblical mandate to build or buy a facility because fulfillment changes this picture. And actually Haggai and his message is aimed at something deeper. Look at verse 8. God says, wrong book, Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house. Let's contextualize. Go through a capital campaign, raise some money, submit architectural plans, make decisions in committee about outlets and, and lighting and carpet. Why all of that busyness? For what purpose? So that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. That's the ultimate end. Not that God is looking forward to sitting back and admiring the craftsmanship of the building so much as He is looking forward to delighting in, taking great pleasure in the alignment of His people's hearts and wills and minds to His own, which is always for our greatest joy and fulfillment and His greatest glory. Here in Haggai, the people's neglect of the temple was rooted in apathy towards worship and service. The ruins were a symptom of what was going on in the people's hearts. That's what the Lord is saying through the prophet. Uh, you don't care. Your priorities are wrong. You, you do not 
exalt me above all else because this neglect is a symptom of what's going on in your hearts. And that preaches pretty effectively to us still today without concern about the temple in Jerusalem being relevant in our context. Author Walter Kaiser Jr. wrote this, doing the work of God was not an end in and of itself, but was an external barometer of a change going on in the souls of those who had refused up to this point to put their shoulder to the load. Is it about a building, Haggai? Yes, but not really. It's about the glory of God being reflected appropriately in His people. Look, the focal point of our 2016 vision campaign is unapologetically 21 Harristown Road in Glen Rock, New Jersey. But let me again repeat that what I'm not saying is that this project that we're undergoing is as important as rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem was to God's people back in 500 B.C. I am not saying that our decision to move forward, supported by almost uh, every member in the church, was God's mandate to us backed by the infallible Word of God telling us to do this. I'm not saying that. No one's saying that here. But the questions aimed at the heart that we see in Haggai are so relevant to us in our parallel pursuit of worship space, a home for God's people. So I am urging us to examine our own heart and consider questions like these. I didn't put them up because I'd like you to listen and reflect. If you want a copy of these, uh, I'm happy to give it to you afterwards. Do I tend to make excuses for prioritizing God above all else in my life? Especially in my time and finances. Uh, the background a little bit more, the temple had, uh, building had actually gotten off to a quick start as soon as the exiles came back. This is uh, recorded in the book of Ezra. But Enemies rose up against God's people, and fear of persecution stalled the project, leading 16 years later to ruins still lying around. Question, is my spiritual passivity connected with fear? Fear of persecution, fear of people's disapproval, fear of not keeping up with the Joneses, fear of financial security or insecurity, fear of falling behind. Do I get frustrated because my efforts at work, at home, in my relationships don't produce the results that I really want, that I believe I deserve, that should naturally come with what I've put into it, that I've asked God to provide? Do I get frustrated and do I sometimes end up blaming God for not coming through? Because I put in my 50 cents and push the button, then I expect the candy bar to pop out. If I'm making more today than I did last year, and five years ago, am I any more satisfied with more? Give careful thought to your ways, God says. Do I have fewer bills and problems that stress me out? Do I default to self-reliance and try even harder, devote even more time and attention to achieving my self-defined goals, desires, dreams? And what is my equivalent of living in a paneled house while God's house remains in ruins? What standard of living do I demand which very well may crowd out the things of God's kingdom? Last question. Do I see from God's Word that my priority must always be God Himself? 
Do I believe Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount when, when He says, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness? Seek first, priority, and all these things will be given to you as well. Here's what God says through Haggai and the rest of the short book, summarized in two phrases. Chapter 2, verse 6, in a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth. He's the Creator. And I will fill this house with glory, verse 7, says the Lord Almighty. Whoever becomes president, whatever Kim Jong-un or ISIS choose to do, the Lord God Almighty sits on His throne, and His will cannot be thwarted, and His kingdom will prevail. Chapter 2, verse 19, very simply, the people have responded, and God says, from this day on, I will bless you. That is a promise in response to God's obedience. Do you trust Him? Do you exalt Him? Is He preeminent in your life? Does your security now and in eternity come from Him alone through faith in Jesus Christ? In your response of obedience and service and sacrifice, God's blessings from His fatherly hand will never fail to satisfy. Let's come before Him and freshly trust that that is true for us individually and us as a church. Let's pray. Lord, You say You will shake the heavens and the earth, and we, Your people, because we're securing Jesus, don't fear that. We wait for that. We pray for that, Lord, not because of anything we've done, not because uh, we have achieved our own security, but because You promise, as we trust in Jesus, that no one can snatch us out of your hand, that you will never let us go, that you are with us just as you promised to be with the Israelites in their obedience to you. Father, shake, show yourself to be sovereign, and stir in our hearts by your word and through your spirit a similar response of obedience and priority and sacrifice that we might exalt you and worship you as you are due. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.